Well, it's a privilege to be uh, preaching this morning to you guys. Well, I remember one of my first job interviews when I was a college student. It was at this uh, retail place that sells UT apparel. Uh, if I were to guess, that place is probably not going to be as crowded this afternoon uh, as probably it was yesterday. And I remember uh, in this interview, and not even just this interview, but every single interview that I have had for a job, I remember my manager asking me the typical questions that you're accustomed to being asked for part-time jobs, really just jobs in general. What are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And so my answer to my strengths were, you know, the typical ones. Well, I'm a team player, hard worker. And one of the answers was I consider myself a perfectionist, right? I do everything I can to be perfect and do the best job that I possibly can. And I won't stop until the job is satisfactory. And I, I answer that and I'm like, okay, it, this guy, I'm gonna get hired. I'm gonna get this job, just here are my strengths. And then the manager asked me, okay, great, that's awesome. So what are your weaknesses? And my answer to that was, well, I think it's that I'm a perfectionist, honestly. Uh, you know, sometimes I can be really hard on myself. I sometimes try to do such the best job that I possibly can. And man, that, that sometimes I'm too hard on myself. I'm my worst critic, right? Sometimes I'm uh, taking way too much time on a project longer than it usually would go. And hey, it's, it's just hard. It's a weakness because I'm a perfectionist, but I'm, I'm not perfect, right? I mean, that's a really big weakness. And that's the attempt of, you know, that was the only weakness that I shared because, again, I'm trying to get this job. I'm not going to share the big, you know, drastic weaknesses, right? And so this was nine years ago. And while I was just trying to answer that question in the best way that I could, I can't admit personally that I am a perfectionist. I try to do not just the best job that I can, I try to do the best possible job that I can. Not just in work, not just in my job, not just in school when I was in school, but just in life in general. I want every single detail to be perfect, with no flaws, with no weaknesses. And as now I'm 28 years old, nine years later after that job interview, I see that I'm not only a perfectionist, but I see that I can often find myself incredibly discouraged by my imperfections in certain moments. I see my imperfections in so many different ways. My imperfections as a son, my imperfections as a brother, as a friend, as a minister to high school and college students, my imperfections as even a preacher. And way more often than not, I see my imperfections and I see my sins even as a follower of Jesus. And I can find myself growing really, really discouraged when that is in front of my face. And I wonder if I am, probably not, I wonder if I am the only one who experiences those moments. When I see not just my imperfections, but even deeper, my sins, our sins. And those can be, honestly, very dark moments as a follower of Jesus. Dark moments where you, you're filled with a hopeless question of asking, has God given up on me? 
because how not just imperfect I am, but because of how sinful I am. And so what do we do in those moments? What do we do in those moments? How do we respond in those moments? How are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to believe? And how are we supposed to act in response to those things? Well, my prayer this morning is that as we read this passage from the Sermon on the Mount, and that while we are faced with the reality of our own imperfect righteousness, my prayer this morning is that we can hope in the perfect righteousness of our Savior. And that as a response to seeing his perfect righteousness, we keep following him. Well, the title of our message this morning is Perfect Righteousness. Perfect Righteousness. We will see a few observations from our passage, and then we will close uh, with some application points. So the first observation that we can see in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, is seen in the first verse. And that first observation of the text is, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. In this passage, we see Jesus almost taking a pause in talking about what outward kingdom living looks like. And we see him talking about why he's someone who's worthy of our attention to begin with and why he is someone that we can trust with what he says. I haven't been here in the hub the last couple of Sundays, but I know that Jake has presented the question to you all of, does Jesus really know what he's talking about? And that's a huge question for us to be able to answer. And so we see here Jesus answering that question. And he starts by clarifying to the crowd in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when we see this passage and we see that when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's referring to the whole Old Testament, which includes the, the Torah, the law, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then the prophets, which includes the rest of the Old Testament. And throughout Jesus' public ministry, many Pharisees and many scribes thought that with Jesus' teachings, he was actually, they were accusing him of throwing out and putting away the entire Old Testament and attempting to bring in something completely different and completely new. And here you see Jesus clarifying, do not think for a second. Do not even consider the idea that I came to abolish, that I came to throw away, or that I came to destroy what has already been written in the law and in the prophets. So he clarifies that, and then he says, instead of coming to destroy the Old Testament, I've actually come to fulfill it. Now, what Jesus said here is a massive claim, because he's not just saying, hey, I don't have any issues with the Old Testament. I'm an Old Testament guy, right? I read Habakkuk, right? Not too many people know that's a book in the Old Testament, right? I've read it, right? Haggai, I'm a big Haggai guy, right? He's not just saying that he's an Old Testament guy. What he's saying is the commands that were written in the law and the prophecies that point to the coming Messiah, I have actually come to complete those. 
He's not just saying, I don't have a problem with the Old Testament. He's ultimately saying, I've come to accomplish the Old Testament. And I've come to accomplish it because the Old Testament is about me. (laughs) All of the laws that demanded perfect obedience and all of the prophecies that spoke of the one to deliver God's people from their sins. Jesus says, I have come to complete those. And some as they read this, perhaps may think, how exactly does Jesus fulfill the entire Old Testament? It's a big book. It's a big section of the Bible. How does Jesus exactly fulfill the entire Old Testament? What does this look like? Well, the first way that we understand Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament in regards to the laws is that he fulfills the Old Testament in his perfect obedience. In his perfect obedience. So in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws that the people of God are called to obey. 248 regulations, things to do. And 365 prohibitions, things not to do. And throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus perfectly obeyed the entire law of God, all 613 commands. He obeys the entire law of God and was without sin in his life and without sin in his heart. And when you read the Old Testament, the law of God does not just demand excellent obedience or near-perfect obedience. The law of God demands whole, perfect obedience. And that even if you follow most of God's law, the book of James says that if you break just one commandment in the law, you are guilty of breaking all of it. No one could ever keep the law of God perfectly until Jesus came. And he came to perfectly obey God's law, to prove that he himself is God incarnate, and to prove to everyone, to the world, that he is the only one who is without sin. In regards to the law, Jesus also fulfills God's law in his perfect sacrifice. In his perfect sacrifice. In God's law, what was required wasn't just perfect obedience to all 600 plus laws. But what was also required in the law was a sacrifice on behalf to pay for the sins of those who didn't obey God's law. And as you read the Old Testament, and as you read the book of Hebrews, you see that these sacrifices would normally be in the form of animals, such as lambs or goats. And while these animal sacrifices were to atone for the sins of God's people in that day, what Hebrews teaches and what the Old Testament teaches is these animal sacrifices were only temporary payments that didn't fully pay for everyone's sins. And that's why the high priest would come daily to the temple to offer animal sacrifices daily for the sins of God's people. Because the sins of God's people was so great, not just that, but because these sacrifices weren't perfect and they weren't sufficient payment. So in God's law, it wasn't just required perfect obedience. It was also required a perfect sacrifice that would pay for sins once and for all. 
And while Jesus fulfilled God's law in perfectly obeying it, he also fulfills God's law and that he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for all of our sins. So let me just ask, what's the difference between someone like me dying for your sins as opposed to Jesus dying for your sin? Well, I'm a sinner. I've got my own sin to atone for. I've got my own disobedience to pay for. I'm responsible for my own sin. I'm not perfectly holy. So me dying for you isn't a sufficient sacrifice. The payment wouldn't be permanent. But because Jesus is perfect, and because Jesus is without sin, him dying in our place is a sufficient payment for our sins. And that when he died for us, he died for our sins once and for all, and there's no need for animal sacrifices anymore. That's why John the Baptist says in the beginning of the Gospel of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in perfect obedience and in perfect sacrifice and that there is no need for us to pay for our sins because Jesus has already paid it. And we trust that his payment was sufficient because he rose from the dead. His resurrection shows the check is cleared over our souls and over our sins. His sacrifice for our sins was enough and way better and way more perfect than any other animal sacrifice possibly could have. And so because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the law, and because of his perfect sacrifice for those who broke the law, Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law. And in regards to the prophets, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in confirmed prophecy. In confirmed prophecy. We may think of the Old Testament just as a law, just as a rule book. But what it ultimately is, is a book that points to the coming of the Savior of the world. And we see these prophecies. We see the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah, even starting in Genesis 3. And you see prophecies of the coming of Jesus throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And as Jesus claims to have come to fulfill the prophet, if you read the book of Matthew, you will notice that what he's doing throughout his gospel, Matthew is citing prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling in his coming and in his earthly ministry. Matthew's acknowledging Jesus is not only who he says he is, but he is what the word of God says he is. This is the one that the prophet spoke of, prophet spoke of, this one right here. Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. If Jesus threw the law of God out, the law is unfinished and incomplete. Someone still needs to perfectly obey it, and someone still needs to pay for those who didn't obey it. And if Jesus threw away the prophecies that were concerning the Messiah, that means that we as sinners wouldn't have hope of a coming Savior. It means that we would still be stuck in the guilt of our sins, and not only that, we wouldn't have hope of a way out. We wouldn't have hope of a freedom 
Praise God that Jesus came not to throw away the Old Testament, but he came to fulfill and to complete it. What we also see in this text is Jesus affirms the Old Testament. He not just fulfills it, but he affirms the Old Testament. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is not only confirming that he will fulfill the Old Testament, he is also affirming that every single letter of the Old Testament is valid and has God, godly authority. Iota here is referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And so what Jesus is saying here, the Old Testament has its power and has its authority and that every single word and every single mark will be accomplished in it. Every single jot, every single tittle of the Old Testament is God's word. And what he says in his word, whether it's big or small, it will come to pass. Why? Because God keeps his word. And what you will see all over the Gospels is how Jesus has the highest regard for the Old Testament as God's word. Jesus values the Old Testament more than any human being ever has. You see that in how he teaches it faithfully to the people that he's teaching. You see it in how he uses it against the Pharisees who wrongly interpret and wrongly pervert its teachings. You see Jesus value the word of God, the Old Testament, as he uses it against Satan when he's being tempted in the wilderness. You see how he values the word of God as how he references certain stories from the Old Testament as if they are historically factual. Stories that a lot of critics would question the validity of, such as the story of Noah or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Jonah. And you see him valuing the Old Testament so much that he even quotes it when he's suffering on the cross. He references Psalm 22 where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nobody has ever had such a high respect and such a high view of the Old Testament than Jesus himself. In his obedience to it and in his teaching, he affirms that the Old Testament is God's written word in its authority and in its trustworthiness, every single letter of it. And so because Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament, and because Jesus affirms the perfection of the Old Testament as God's word, he then expects it to be followed. That if this is God's word, and the commands in the law are commands from the one and holy God, then Jesus says, we can't take even what we consider the smallest commands lightly. Verse 18, 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus affirms the Old Testament as God's word, he also expects faithfulness to how God's word is obeyed by us and how it is taught by us. And we will talk about later which commandments are we supposed to obey now as New Testament Christians. But the big point that Jesus is trying to make here is every single one of these commands in this law, all 613 of them, are significant because every single command is God's word. And anyone would be wrong to relax one of these commands, even if they're considered small by everybody else. How can we take lightly what God says is a big deal? How can we push aside one command when God means that every iota and every word of what he says? And notice what he says here. Don't take these commands lightly in how you live it out, but also how you teach it. That if you take a commandment lightly in how you obey it, that will also come out in how you teach it to others. And so Jesus is saying, take every command in the law just as seriously because every command is the word of God. So not just are you trying to obey it and you are required to obey all of it, you're also required to teach all of it faithfully. Jesus takes the law and the prophets seriously. And he takes the relaxing and the perverting of God's law so seriously that he says that if anyone takes any of these commands less seriously than the others, he says that we will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the meaning of least in the kingdom has been debated. It can either refer to different rankings or positions in the kingdom, or it can refer to complete exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus perhaps was using this as kind of a wordplay here, that if you consider one of these commands as least, then you will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven and be shut out from it. And with whatever place you fall on that interpretation, whatever view you have on that, Jesus is clear on this point. Take every law in the Old Testament seriously and you take it seriously because your placement in the kingdom of heaven is on the line here. We will either be considered great in the kingdom of heaven on how we obeyed God's law and how we taught God's law and our true obedience and faithfulness, or we may be excluded from the kingdom altogether. And that goes into our final observation of the text that as Jesus affirms the authority of every word of the Old Testament, he ultimately demands perfect righteousness. Jesus demands perfect righteousness. As Jesus has come to fulfill and affirm all the Old Testament, and as he holds it in the highest regard, he then drops the hammer and says in verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you think about the context of who Jesus is talking to, this is a huge statement to make. Because the Pharisees and the scribes were considered in that society 
to be the ones who knew the law of God. They were the ones who obeyed it more faithfully than everyone else. And if anyone were ever to be considered righteous by their own conduct and by their outward lives, it would be the Pharisees and it would be the scribes. Like if you looked at their outward obedience, you would want these guys as your pastors and as your elders, as your deacons. And instead of Jesus saying, look at the Pharisees and the scribes, you will do well and you will attain righteousness if you follow their lead. Instead of him saying that, he says, their righteousness isn't enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. I understand they do all or try to follow all 600 plus laws and commands. I understand that they may be outwardly excellent in doing them. But their righteousness still falls short of the kingdom of heaven, so much so that they will be excluded from it. And Jesus says, you will be too, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs. And if you were someone listening to those words on that mountain, there's likely some anxiety that's taking place there. The people who are trying to do everything they can to obey God's law still fall short of heaven. And then the question arises, even if the ones who dedicate their entire lives to studying and following the Old Testament, even if these people fall short, how could I possibly surpass them? How could I surpass them? If there's a righteousness to be attained that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, that seems to be a righteousness that is impossible to attain. Not just for me personally, but for anyone. What's the point that Jesus is trying to make here? This is huge. What you will see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is that while Jesus is certainly concerned with the outward obedience of God's people, he is ultimately concerned with that outward obedience coming from an inward change of heart. You know what the problem was with the Pharisees and the scribes? It wasn't their lack of obedience. It was their lack of God in their obedience. They were obeying the law of God, but they were obeying the law as if the law was their God. They weren't obeying out of an inward faith and trust in God. They were obeying out of an inward faith and trust in themselves. And while they were so concerned about their outward obedience, their righteousness fell short because their hearts remained unchanged. As Jesus taught regarding the Pharisees, they were so concerned about how they looked on the outside that they are like whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, really pleasant to look at, but dead on the inside. And because their hearts were not for God, they tried getting into heaven without God, which is the most foolish thing that you can do and most foolish thing that you can believe, thinking that you're just as holy and just as righteous without God and on your own works and in your own heart. If you guys remembered last year as we read Romans, no one will be justified by their works of God's law. And why does Paul say that? Because God's law 
reveals our sin. It doesn't reveal our righteousness. It doesn't reveal how good we are. It reveals how dead we are. It reveals how in need of a Savior we truly are. And as you go on to read, and as we will go on to read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches the Old Testament law in a way that isn't contrary to its original meaning, but his teaching is actually going to the very core of the law and to the very core of what perfect righteousness really is. And in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, this is what a lot of people call Jesus' thesis statement for the sermon. And the main point that Jesus teaches here is that perfect righteousness is not just outward, but it's inward. Outward righteousness is partial righteousness, and that falls short of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says whole, complete, and perfect righteousness is inward with the heart, and that inward righteousness is what produces outward righteousness. And here's where our hopeless feeling grows deeper. Because we can't change our hearts. We can clean up our actions. We can be a little bit more disciplined in our lives and in our routines. But we can't change what's going on inside of us. As people read this sermon, read this passage, we see that on our own, we are totally hopeless. And that's Jesus' point. The righteousness that is demanded in the kingdom of heaven is far beyond anything that you on your own can attain. Now, we just got really deep in the weeds of this passage here. Pretty deep. And the deeper we got, the more we started to understand that this perfect righteousness that's demanded of us, it's impossible for us to achieve on our own. I may have lost some of you guys. I don't know. And perhaps there is a heavy weight being felt from reading a passage like this and understanding this. And we see that as we see how we fall short of God's righteousness, we end up seeing not just, we don't see a need for us to get ourselves together because we can't do that. We see a need for mercy. We see a need for a savior. So as we read a passage like this, and as we come to the conclusion of our need for mercy, what do we do in response to this? When we read a passage like this, what are we supposed to do in responding to this? Well, let's move into our application. The first thing that we do is we treasure the new and the Old Testament. We are called in this passage to not just treasure what is taught and what is written in the New Testament, but what is taught and read in the Old Testament. Of the 66 books in the Bible, the Old Testament has 39 of those. It's almost 60% of the Bible. And if we are being honest, and if I'm being honest, there are moments where I can struggle reading the Old Testament and where I can struggle to treasure what is written in them, just like I treasure the New Testament. Because my reason is, the New Testament's when we get to the good stuff, right? It's when we get to the good news. It seems like the Old Testament is just filled with all the bad news, where we see how messed up all of Israel is. 
and we see God's wrath against sin many times. Some of us, as we read the Old Testament and compare that to the New Testament, we may think, is Old Testament God and New Testament God like the same God, or are they different? Because the Old Testament God seems a little old and grumpy and spiteful, and then the New Testament God, he seems to be a little bit more gracious and gentle and lovely. And let's also be honest with the Old Testament. It could be a little bit more difficult to endure reading. Anybody? Am I, is it just me? They could be sometimes difficult to read. Some of the stories are just weird, all right? You can say that. They're a little weird. For those who have a plan to read the Bible in a year, perhaps you struggle to endure reading the Old Testament past a certain point. You may get to Genesis 10, after Noah and the ark, and you feel like it gets pretty boring past that, right? Or maybe you soldiered on, and you've made it all the way to Numbers, and you're like, man, how many offerings does Israel have to make? This is insane. And perhaps it's tempting for us to just skim through the Old Testament begrudgingly until you get to the good stuff in the New Testament. Or perhaps you just kind of toss out the Old Testament altogether, except the Psalms and the Proverbs, because that can be really helpful, right? And the Gideons gave that to us, right? In this passage that we just read, Jesus not only affirms every single word in the Old Testament to be the very word of God, but he also says that all of it is about him and that he has come to fulfill all of it. And so if Jesus holds the Old Testament in the highest possible view, shouldn't we as followers of Jesus do the same? And I'm speaking for myself here. We, as New Testament disciples of Jesus Christ, treasure the Old Testament because it points us to Jesus Christ. And so how do we treasure it? First of all, we read it. We read it. We don't just read the New Testament, but we also read the Old Testament. We have a reading plan that keeps us in the Old Testament. When we read a chapter from the New Testament, we also make an effort to read a chapter from the Old Testament as well. We don't just skip it, and we don't just skim over it. We treasure it by reading it. The second thing we do is we study it. The Old Testament is incredibly confusing and difficult and weird to read if it's just you and your own understanding. And can I just say, don't be surprised by that, and don't be discouraged by that. It was written thousands of years ago in a completely different context than ours. And so because of that, find a good study Bible and read the Old Testament with that and let that guide you through all of your questions and through all of the stories that may be a little bit confusing. I recommend the ESV study Bible. It's a lot of good resources in there. Find a good commentary on the Old Testament. Listen to good sermons on the Old Testament. Understanding the Old Testament doesn't just mean reading it, it also means studying it. And the final way we treasure the Old Testament is we look for Jesus in it. As Jesus testifies that the Old Testament points to him, he is also testifying that the God who has come to bring the new covenant is the same God who brought the old covenant. Old Testament God and New Testament God are the same God. 
And we see that in the harmony of all the books in the Bible. And we see that in how all of the scriptures point to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. As we read of the holiness of God and his law, and as we look forward to the Messiah and the prophets, we see Jesus is all over the Old Testament. And so because of that, every iota, every dot of the Old Testament is worth our attention. And I'll just say this. Reading the Old Testament and understanding that it all points to Jesus, that gives you a deeper appreciation for it. And my prayer is that we all grow in treasuring and appreciating the Old Testament, just like we treasure and appreciate the new. Our second application is we follow the law of Christ. We follow the law of Christ. So as we read this passage, the question that arises for most of us is likely, so if Jesus valued every piece of the Old Testament, shouldn't we still strive to obey every law in it? Shouldn't we aspire to obey all 613 of these laws, even the least of these commands, such as we strive not to eat pork or wear clothes made of both linen and wool? or not boil our baby goats in their mother's milk, right? Do we need to obey all of these commands? What makes me free from having to obey all of them? Well, my answer to that is, first of all, we could go another 30 minutes probably answering that, but I'm gonna try in less than five, okay? So first of all, to answer that question, in the Old Testament, it's important to know the context of it. And it's important to know that there were different kinds of laws that were given specifically to the nation of Israel. Some laws were given to them such as dietary or ceremonial laws. And the purpose of those laws was to make the nation of Israel different from the rest of the nations around them. The, Israels, the Israelites abstained from eating pork because the nations around them ate pork and actually worshiped them. And they were also commanded not to wear clothes made of both linen and wool for the same exact purpose, to stand out from the rest of the world, to say, this is God's people. And notice with these ceremonial laws, these laws are customs, right? These aren't moral laws in regards to justice and respect toward others. And as you read in the New Testament, it's important to understand this. The ceremonial laws that you read in the Old Testament were always supposed to be temporarily followed. They were only supposed to be temporary. And you see that later on in the Gospels when Jesus declares all foods to be clean. So, what we see here, the ceremonial and the dietary laws of Israel in the Old Testament were made for the people of Israel at that time as a political ethnic people. And there would be a time when those laws would eventually come to an end and that no one has to follow them anymore, or at least honor them in saying, this is how I obtain all of my righteousness. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus came, as it says here, Jesus came to fulfill all the Old Testament laws. He came to fulfill the moral laws. He came to fulfill the dietary laws, the civil laws, and the ceremonial laws. He fulfilled all 613 of these. 
So because of that, we as New Testament believers in Jesus are no longer bound to keep all 600 plus of the Old Testament laws in order to obtain righteousness. We're no longer bound to those. Jesus has already fulfilled all of them. And so we no longer have to worry about our baby goats accidentally slipping into their mother's piping hot milk. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We're free from that. We're free from the binding of the Old Testament law. But as you read the Sermon on the Mount and as you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that followers of Jesus Christ are still called to obey a certain law in order to show their allegiance to God, in order to show how different they are from the rest of the people around them. And in the New Testament, that is often called the law of Christ. And so what is the law of Christ? Jesus summarizes it in the Gospels many times. The law of Christ is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second law is, Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of Christ. And after Jesus teaches this, he says, this fulfills the law. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what are you called to obey? You're called to obey the law of Christ. Love your God and love your neighbor. And what does loving God and loving your neighbor look like? The Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) What Jesus is teaching right now, the inward and outward working of loving God and loving your neighbor is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus doesn't abolish the Old Testament because the law of Christ is basically found in the Ten Commandments. And here's the other beautiful reality of this as a followers of Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes would attempt to follow all 600 laws in an effort to reach the mountaintop of heaven. But the freedom and the glorious truth as a Christian is that we follow the law of Christ, not so that we might reach the mountaintop, but because we already are on the mountaintop. We don't obey Jesus so that he might save us. We obey Jesus because he has already saved us. And that we walk with him, not so that we may attain salvation, but we walk with him because he in his own perfection has given that righteousness to us. And that goes into our final application, and that is treasure the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Treasure the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Where is your hope in a passage like this when you see that your own righteousness will never be enough? Your hope is in the one who is perfectly righteous, who gave himself to die for your unrighteousness so that he may give his perfect righteousness to you. Jesus is the son of God who is perfect inward and outward. And when you were God's enemy and you needed your sin to be paid for, Jesus gave his perfect self for a sinner like you so that you may be declared righteous, not just outwardly, but that you may be declared righteous 
inwardly because Jesus didn't just come to change your actions. He came to change your heart so that the rest of your life will change and so that you will be given eternal life in him. And so, look, the Sermon on the Mount talks a lot about how we should live as citizens of the kingdom. And we should listen and we should strive to obey everything that Jesus teaches here. But we can't talk about what kingdom living looks like until we have been given kingdom life from the king himself. And we can't live for Jesus if we don't trust in Jesus for eternal life to begin with. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you haven't laid down your own attempt at righteousness, and if you haven't trusted in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you must put your faith in him before you can ever have life in the kingdom, before you can ever live in the kingdom. And so if you haven't put your faith in Jesus and in his perfection and in his love and grace over you, I invite you to come to Jesus this morning and to experience and to be given the perfect righteousness, not just outward righteousness, but inward righteousness. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to continue treasuring the perfect righteousness that Jesus has given to you. And as you grow in treasuring that, you let that fuel you in how you follow him and how you obey him. After Jesus saves you, he then says, go and sin no more, follow me. I encourage all of us to treasure the perfect righteousness of Jesus. When I read this passage, I think of the perfect righteousness of Jesus and I get discouraged because I don't follow Jesus that well. I don't follow and obey the Sermon on the Mount that well. And in my most convicted moments, which a lot of those have been this week, even just reading this passage, I wonder if Jesus is just as perfect in his grace as he is in his righteousness. I wonder that. And then the Lord brought me to the end of the Gospel of John, where after Peter denies Jesus three times. Remember, Jesus taught the crowds, if you deny me in front of people, I will deny you in front of my Father in heaven. And so at the end of the Gospel of John, after Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus comes to Peter and asks him three times in redeeming him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers three times, grieving over his sins, grieving over his denial of Jesus, and he answers him, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus responds, feed my sheep, follow me. Obey my commands and teach my commands and follow me. Jesus is perfect in righteousness, but Jesus is also perfect in grace. And that even after Peter denies Jesus, Jesus redeems him. 
And then what does Jesus say after he redeems Peter? He says, now get back up and follow me. Treasure the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Treasure in the perfect grace of Jesus. And when you are discouraged, when you stumble, when you fail to obey the Sermon on the Mount, get back up and follow him. Because his perfect righteousness is over you and his perfect grace and his perfect love has been given to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We are so thankful that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And Lord, fulfilling the law means to perfectly obey it and then to be the perfect sacrifice for those who didn't perfectly obey it. And so, Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, and his perfect righteousness. We praise you for his sacrifice. We thank you that he lived the life that we couldn't live. That, Lord, he died the death that we deserved. And that, Lord, as we trust in his righteousness instead of our own, we are given life in the kingdom. And because of that, we are also able to live and to walk in the kingdom. I pray for all of us in here as followers of you, Jesus, that we do not see your commands as burdensome, that we do not see your law as something that we strive to obey or to attain without you, but that, Lord, we see that you perfectly obeyed it, and, Lord, we just simply walk in your footsteps. And we don't walk in your footsteps to try and obtain salvation. We walk in your footsteps because you've already given it to us. Father, help us rejoice and treasure in your son's perfect righteousness and in your son's perfect grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.